You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kinway, Toves, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'm pleased to welcome our two newest Commodores, Eric and Fell. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I have a piece of advice for all of you. It's advice that I only follow sporadically at best, but it's good advice nonetheless. We should all keep a journal or a diary. We should take the time to find a few minutes every day to sit down and handwrite your experiences. Keeping a journal is kind of meditative. It makes you pause and reflect. And it also forces you to examine how you spend your time when you have to physically write down that you sat on the couch and played video games for eight hours. You might change up your routine. Not that I've ever done that. And who knows, one day... Far in the future, someone might just find something in your journals valuable enough to do a podcast about them. I am eternally grateful to all of those pirates who wrote down their experiences. William Dampier and Basil Ringroads, Alexander Exquimelin. Simultaneously, though, I'm frustrated at the scarce nature of those primary sources when talking about pirates. It could be worse, I mean, we could be dealing with medieval history, and thank God we aren't, but pirates are generally not well known to be literate and forward-thinking. And wouldn't you just love to have the personal stories from a bunch of different pirate ships? Ships that we know nothing about aside from maybe their one big haul. An account from any of a hundred different ships that were sailing during the Golden Age, of which we know virtually nothing. And even the bigger ships. Wouldn't you want Henry Avery's diary, or Calico Jack's diary, or even the diary of his quartermaster, or just a deckhand on board? That would be fantastic. It would really flesh out the world of the pirates. However, we should be thankful for what we do have. Dampier's account is wonderful. It's one of the best we have in regard to pirates. And that's unfortunate today, because it's about to come to an end. Dampier has and will go on to wear many hats, but no longer, after today, will he wear the tricorn of a pirate. 
And of course, I am obligated to point out that tricorns, while popular in high society, to show off the wigs, weren't proper pirate gear, but that's neither here nor there. Dampier's adventures will continue on, and we will cover them when that time comes. But today, we're going to see the end of Dampier's career as a pirate. This is episode 137, Escape from Signet. And as Dampier's career as a pirate comes to an end, we're going to leave his story behind. Not for good, of course, but for a while. However, I really don't want to be done with Dampier's tale. I love his story. It's got elements that I just love. It's got adventure, excitement, globe-trotting exploration, and it's got the first English accounts of a number of customs and traditions that range all the way from Malaysia to Australia. For example... Dampier may have been the first English person to note the use of chopsticks. Now, you and I know what chopsticks are, but William Dampier did not. And I want to talk about that. I find it fascinating. It's a, an interesting corner in world history. However, were I to explore that, it would lead me into the weeds. I would wind up talking about the history of chopsticks, which naturally would lead into a history of Chinese cuisine. Incidentally, chopsticks were originally a cooking tool, much like tongs used for grilling. However, as Chinese culinary customs shifted away from grilling and towards stewed dishes and wok cooking, chopsticks left behind their use as a tool and took up their modern role as cutlery. And then, of course, we would have to take into account Confucianism and imperial dictates. And that would, of course, lead into a bit about the Great British Baking Show, which I love, and a Dutch dish they made on there that used two sticks to make these tiny little round pancakes stuffed with apple. And that, delicious as it is, would naturally take us into imperialism in China, which would lead to me taking cheap shots at Xi Jinping, which I don't want to do. Now, did I have this episode completed? Yes, I did. Was it, upon reflection, a series of incoherent ramblings that had absolutely nothing to do with pirates? Oh, you bet it was. So instead of that, I'm going to let William Dampier himself tell us why I should not go down that road, why I shouldn't explore all of those winding paths. He spends pages talking about China, and then writes prior to more pages about China, quote, a particular account of them and their country would fill a volume. Nor doth my short experience qualify me to say much, end quote, although he said plenty. So we're going to stick with Dampier's story when it intersects with pirates, or when it's relevant to pirates. And don't worry, that happens kind of a lot from here on out. Now last time I left off with a bit of a cliffhanger. I told you that the Signet and her pirate crew was headed for Manila, headed back to Manila after having been frustrated in their first attempt. They really wanted a shot at that Acapulco ship, that Manila galleon. They were unable to reach their destination because, and this is some pretty technical sailing jargon, so try to keep up here, the wind was blowing the other way. If, last time when I left off on that cliffhanger, you thought to yourself something along the lines of, but wait, didn't they fail to reach Manila last time because of the, you know, wind? If you thought anything like that, then you're quicker than 90% of the Signet's crew. I mean, William Dampier knew that it wouldn't work, 
Herman Coppinger knew it wouldn't work. Assam and Alonzo Ramirez knew it. The Spanish, the Dutch, the Philippine, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Indonesians, everybody knew that that would not work. But John Reed and his lot, they thought to themselves, maybe. And if this were a question of a bold assault, or a scientific innovation, or maybe a political idea that everyone already knew was just impossible, then I would applaud them. I would applaud their stubbornness. But it's not a scientific innovation or a bold assault. Maybe an attempt at a bold assault. But it's just the wind was blowing the other way. These sailors should have known they could not reach Manila. However, they tried and failed. Instead, they were blown to China. Now there in China, they roamed the coast for several months, hopping north and south to different islands and port cities. But this is the bit that I'm skipping over. Dampier goes into great detail in describing China. And considering the succeeding relations between China and England, there might be something there that we could make of this. But really, it's not that consequential. Dampier wrote, I think, so much about China, due to the Chinese fever that was gripping most of Europe, and England especially, in the late 17th century. A full two years before William Dampier arrived in China, a year before he arrived in Asia, a Catholic Chinese missionary named Michael Shinfu Sung was making a procession throughout Europe. Michael was a native Chinese speaker, but he also spoke Latin, being a Catholic priest. That allowed him to speak to the popes and potentates that he met along the way. It allowed him to teach at monasteries in Italy and France and in England. He personally showed Louis XIV how to use chopsticks well before Dampier saw them, and Michael Shinfu Sung met King James II of England. There is a portrait of him hanging in the English gallery today. You're seeing a lot of this around this time. There is a heavy European presence in Asia, and that's why there were Siamese and Chinese diplomats and missionaries sent to go explore and learn about Europe. And then here is William Dampier. A buccaneer, yes, but also an explorer and a naturalist. He was tramping around Asia at just the moment that Michael Shinfu Sung was in England. He returned to England sometime after the missionary left English shores, but he had this intimate knowledge about China and his publishers wanted very much for him to write about it. And not just China. He went to a lot of places that were important to the English. Looking with hindsight, his book reads just a little bit, in fact, quite a lot bit, like a travel guide for the forthcoming British Empire. As we will see. Upon leaving China, with an eye to cruising for plunder, the ship headed south. They didn't find much plunder, though. They took an odd, uncharted route through the East Indies. Dampier writes, quote, This seemed to be a very tedious way about, and dangerous for shoals, but not for meeting with English or Dutch ships, which was their greatest fear. End quote. They were on the hunt for plunder, and they found virtually none, but even more than that, the most important thing, what was paramount to Captain Reed and Josiah Teat, and really all of the pirates, was to avoid any European presence there. That would lead to, at best, uncomfortable questions, and at worst, mass execution. 
However, they successfully navigated the East Indies without running into any authorities. They made landfall at a small island that had a few friendly locals there. The pirates traded with the locals and had a feast, but then the Signet decided to use that island as kind of a base. Most of the crew headed out to cruise for booty, but a few elected to stay on the island. Dampier did not stay on the island. It looks like he was not allowed to. He was needed for navigation. But maybe a dozen did. And I think that they chose to stay there, hoping that a ship, English or Dutch, or whoever the signet was trying to avoid, might pass by and might pick them up. All of the men who stayed behind were of a mind with Dampier. They were part of that group that did not want to partake in piracy any longer, or at the very least didn't want to serve under Captain John Reed. Now, no ships would stop by, but regardless, those crewmen who stayed behind found themselves in a bit of a tight spot. We need to mention a custom among the people on that island, a custom that's common around the world. The children there did not cut their hair. They wore it loose and long. Women, upon reaching maturity, began wearing their hair up in a bun. Men, upon maturity, cut their hair short. But in the England of the 17th century, men typically grew their hair out long. Or they kept their hair very, very short and wore wigs. However, at this time wigs were out of fashion because Louis XIV did not wear a wig. He had beautiful auburn curls, but wigs would come back into fashion in a few short years once Louis began losing his hair. However, the pirates didn't have wigs, they had natural long hair. The women of that island convinced the pirates who had been left behind to cut their hair short. That's a bit odd, but it is the custom, and they were men there, perhaps they offended by having long hair. But then, those men were presented with tools and a parcel of land that they were told belonged to them. That might put you on your guard, but not so much as what happened next. All of the girls who were almost ready to tie up their hair were brought out before the pirates and offered to them for marriage. One of the pirates, a particularly handsome young man who was quite proud of his golden locks, refused to cut his hair and woke up one morning with a young woman standing above him with a knife. Not to, you know, kill him or anything. She wanted to cut his hair so he could marry her. The crewmen managed to get away without marriage, only by the skin of their teeth, though. Lucky for them, the signet returned just a few days later in late September 1687. Which, if you're keeping track, is a long time after the last time we checked the date, Dampier was in China for quite some time. But the whole crew was ready to set sail by the 13th of October. However, they had yet to decide where to sail exactly. As they were a buccaneer crew, they decided to vote on their decision. Dampier writes, quote, Every man wished himself at home, as they had done a hundred times before. But Captain Reed and Josiah Teat persuaded them to cruise the Red Sea, they easily prevailed with the crew. I was well enough satisfied, knowing that the farther we went, the more knowledge and experience I should get, which was the main thing I regarded, and should also have the more variety of places to attempt an escape, being resolved to take the first opportunity of giving them the slip. 
end quote. Their plan was to head back north and west, through the Spice Islands and around Indonesia into the Indian Ocean. From there, they could travel across the ocean to Africa, up the coast, and into the Red Sea. Along the way, they saw a number of amazing things, things unlike anything they had ever seen before. They saw trees that were larger than any back in Europe. They saw water spouts and tornadoes jump up before them. They even found an island that operated kind of like the Vikings had. Their primary export was slaves. They raided their neighbors and then sold the captives to other neighbors, or to passing European pirates. Captain Reed was in need of a cabin boy, and he found one there, what Dampier describes as a, quote, pretty young boy, end quote. But he had an interesting trait. This boy had four rows of teeth. He had two on top and two on bottom. Another thing that none of them had ever seen before, and Dampier said never saw nor heard tell of ever again. And you know, that's cool and all, but really that's about the most interesting thing they saw. More or less it was an uneventful trip, until, that is, they made their way back to the Philippines. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. They decided to stop just off an island that they knew they had been there before, right off the coast of Mindanao. They were cleaning Signet's Hall when a familiar craft appeared, approached them. That ship was the leisure craft of the Sultan of Maguindanao himself. However, the Sultan wasn't on board. Instead, they saw the sultan's son. And actually, they'd met the sultan's son on board this ship some time before. He was one of the two men that greeted them when they first arrived in Mindanao. The boy's father, the sultan of Maguindanao, was dead. Rumor had it Raja Laut, the sultan's brother, was behind it. Raja Laut had taken power upon the death of the sultan and attempted, in a bid to secure his throne, to kill the young prince. Now that resulted in a civil war. 
the prince was allied with some of the Malay pirates and a rival sultanate to Maguindanao, and actually some of the people within Mindanao that lived in the hills. That would all lead to the Spanish taking advantage of the situation and taking more and more control on the island, but that's later on. But who do you imagine was there, seen at Maguindanao, fighting alongside Raja Laut? None other than our old friend, Charles Swan. According to the prince, Raja Laut had commandeered that chest full of gold. He had it in his possession and was using that gold to buy men and munitions for the war. Having no ship and no money to purchase a ship, Charles Swan and the other Englishmen were hostages. However, Raja Laut assured Charles Swan that if they fought alongside him and if they were victorious, the people of Maguindanao would furnish their finest and largest ship with all of the amenities on board, they would fill the holds with all of the finest treasures of the East Indies, and they would send him back to England in style, triumphant. Now that sounds great, but of course Charles Swan did not really have a choice. The prince, though, the prince in exile, was of the opinion that if the pirates of the signet joined the fight on his side, they might turn the tide. They might rescue Swan and all of their former English comrades. That might peel away more followers from Raja Laut, and they just might have a fighting chance. And should they prevail, the prince said, he would offer them their whole chest of gold in return, as well as that ship. And some members of the crew wanted to do just that. They debated the topic, but John Reed had that talent for playing on his men's insecurity. John Reed reminded the crew of all of the injustices that had been handed down by Swan. He pointed at every man that had been personally shamed by their former captain. He pointed at them until they lowered their eyes. As for the rest, those who maybe didn't have as personal a grudge against Swan, he knew how to play to their fears. He convinced them that Mindanao was a quagmire that would swallow them whole. In the end, they voted not to aid their former captain and to leave as fast as possible to avoid wars between foreign princes. Dampier does mention a tale, something he heard many months later, something he heard from a crew that personally knew Captain Swan. That crew had news of Captain Swan's death and the death of the other Englishmen. Now their reports differed. Some said he was poisoned, others said they fell in battle. But all of their former associates were dead there at Mindanao. However, Dampier did not know that yet. For the time being, they ran. They sailed south and east until they arrived at the farthest reaches of maritime Southeast Asia. There, the signet came upon an island, a large island, that nobody recognized. They found no cities or no ports, and they found no people at all, at least at first. Dampier takes a stab in the dark here. He hypothesizes that they may have been at an island that belonged to William, the Prince of Orange. That island was known as New Holland, but that was no good name for an Englishman. Dampier assumed, though did not know, that these were the islands known throughout Europe as Terra Australis Incognito, in Latin, the unknown southern land. 
Now that idea was ancient. It dated all the way back to Alexander the Great and came to them through ancient Rome. But it wasn't until Dutch adventurers stumbled upon the place about a century earlier that Europeans had any idea what was there. And still they had very little idea outside of the Netherlands. I struggled with how much time I wanted to spend on Australia. I could skip over it, just as I had China. However, interesting things happened here. And more to the point, Dampier, later on, is going to have a very complicated relationship with the island. This was a brief stopover, but his first sight of Australia. Dampier, though, did not like the place. He notes the lack of anchorage there. He sees the tall cliffs, and he likens those to Peru or even England. And then Dampier writes, quote, The land is of a dry, sandy soil, destitute of water, yet producing trees. But the woods are not thick, nor the trees very big. The trees were not known by any of us. We saw none that bore fruit or berries. We saw no sort of animal, nor any track but once, nor is the sea plentifully stored with fish. End quote. It's a destitute place, dry and without much life, nothing to sustain people. But then, Dampier and the rest of the crew met the people of Australia, the indigenous aboriginal people. But Dampier did not like them either. Famously, he did not like them. He wrote, quote, the inhabitants of this country are the miserablest people in the world. They have no houses, garments, or fruits of the earth. Setting aside their human shape, they differ but little from brutes. Their eyelids are always half-closed to keep the flies out of their eyes. Without the assistance of both hands to keep them off, they will creep into one's nostrils and mouth. Being annoyed with these insects, they never open their eyes as do other people. End quote. I'm cutting out some of the less savory bits there, but I think that gives the tenor of his narrative. And I'm skipping over entirely his anatomical description of the people of Australia. However, after that, Dampier continues, quote, They have no clothes but a piece of rind of a tree, tied like a girdle about their waists to cover their nakedness. They have no houses built, but lie in the open air without any covering the earth being their bed, and heaven their canopy. Their only food is a small sort of fish. There is neither herb, nor root, nor grain to eat, nor bird or beast to hunt, having no instruments to do so. End quote. They were a miserable people, in Dampier's estimation, in part because of the miserable land in which they lived, but also in part due to what he saw as their inferiority. And we might chalk that up to typical European imperialism, and Dampier was certainly often guilty of that. However, in almost all the other cases, Dampier finds something complimentary to say, something interesting to talk about. You know, they had cool ships or good food. Maybe they had amazing booze. Perhaps they had pretty clothes or pretty women or exotic dances. Maybe they had great pottery or ingenious crafting skills or metalwork or something. Even when Dampier was looking down on Native American people, he had all of those noble savage tropes to throw around. He found something positive to talk about, 
but he saw nothing at all noble in the people of Australia. Dampier falls into another prejudice common among Europeans imbued with the Protestant work ethic. He calls them lazy. And the attitude is, well, I mean, who do these people think they are? Fishing only until they have enough to eat, then returning home to all of the beautiful nude women to eat and dance and enjoy their lives? What are they doing? I mean, there's profit to be made. And Dampier really leans into that. And I don't know if that's genuine prejudice on his part, or if it's a bit of propaganda. There was certainly prejudice there, but I tend to think that there was propaganda there as well, written after the fact. I think that because of future events, though, events that we're not going to delve into today, but if the people of Australia were little better than animals, then what harm would a few horrific atrocities against them do? And take into account what Dampier has to say about the defensive capabilities of the people of Australia. He writes, quote, These poor creatures have a sort of weapon to fight with their enemies. Some had wooden swords, others a sort of lance. The sword is a piece of wood, shaped somewhat like a cutlass. The lance is a long straight pole hardened by heat. I saw no iron nor any other sort of metal. It is probable they use stone hatchets. End quote. These people were, in terms of technological development, far behind most of the rest of the world. And Dampier, later on, was going to make use of that knowledge. However, for the time being, the signet had visited China and Taiwan, and now Australia. And later on in his story, Dampier's going to be visiting India and an English colony on the coast of Africa. As I said, his book is a travel guide for the British Empire. But you need to keep in mind that all of this is taking months and months. We're through all of 1687 and well into 1688 by this point. By the time they left Australia, it was February 1688. However, they realized that their initial plan was not going to work, so they headed up north. They headed up north and west, past all of those European ports and shipping lanes, and made their way between Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula, out of Indonesia and maritime Southeast Asia, and into the open Indian Ocean. Now, the reason that I was able to skip over all that time is because so little of consequence happened. Sure, some interesting exploration stuff, but, you know, nothing exciting. But the reason that nothing exciting occurred is due almost entirely to Captain Reed's reluctance to do anything that might alert the authorities. Remember, that was paramount. The Dutch and English powers in the region could not have any indication, could have no sign that there were pirates afoot. He took great pains to ensure their anonymity. But then, of course, there was the English presence there on Sumatra that the crew had known about for about a year. And they were perilously close to Sumatra. But Reed decided to take action. He knew that some of his crew were very likely planning to steal a boat and make it to one of the nearby islands or a shoreline that was inhabited. From there, they could book passage with the local people to that English colony. To ensure that that was impossible, that the people of these islands would not trust any members of the crew, 
Captain Reed captured a small local proa. Dampier writes, quote, It was not for the lucre of the cargo that Captain Reed took this boat, but to hinder me and some others from going ashore. For he knew that we were ready to make our escape if an opportunity presented itself, and he thought that by abusing and robbing the natives we should be afraid to trust ourselves among them. But this proceeding of his turned to our advantage. End quote. Captain Reed's plan did work. It did frighten the people of those islands, and it warned them not to trust the pirates there. However, the people of these islands were old hands when it came to dealing with pirates, or really raiders of any kind. They had a system in place. Whenever word of pirates, be they Malay pirates or otherwise, or really whenever word of any hostile ship, many of whom may have been Europeans that were legal representatives of the king, but, you know, who came to kill the islanders, whenever they received word of anything like that, they lit signal fires. These were huge bonfires built atop massive pyres that could be seen for great distances. A few of the larger islands even had mirrors that had been given to them from the Dutch colonists on the mainland. They were made to amplify the light of their signal fires. When one fire was lit, anybody that saw it followed suit. Suddenly there were dozens of huge fires dotting the horizon. It was impossible to miss. Now, do you remember a few minutes ago when I said that the signet and Captain John Reed were trying very, very hard to avoid notice, that it was paramount that they avoid any hint of their presence in the region, to lay low, to go under the radar? Well, all of those bonfires counted as the opposite of laying low. Any passing Dutch ship in the region would certainly notice those gargantuan bonfires and rush to the nearest Dutch port to tell them that the beacons are lit, the islanders call for aid. At which point, I assume, the governor there would take a pregnant pause before replying, and the Netherlands will answer. Long story short, this was bad news for Captain Reed. This was flashing lights in the rearview mirror. This was five stars and Grand Theft Auto. The cops were on their way, and they had a lot of cannons. So Captain Reed ordered the signet to run. Again. They ran into the Indian Ocean as fast as possible, and they escaped the authorities there. Happily, they found a piece of land on which they could rest. The Nicobar Islands, out in the Bay of Bengal, are a small island group that have, on occasion, offered sanctuary to ships that have lost their way or been blown off course. They still serve that purpose often today. Honestly, they look like some of the most beautiful places in the world. Signet anchored there, and then Dampier writes, quote, I desired Captain Reed to set me ashore. He, supposing that I could not go ashore in a place less frequented by ships than this, gave me leave. Which probably he would have refused to have done if he thought I should have gotten from hints in any short time, for fear of my giving an account of him to the English or Dutch. End quote. Dampier was sent ashore because he spoke Malay and Spanish. 
He spoke both pretty well, actually, and that gave him the best chance of being able to speak with whoever lived on that island. As he approached the shore in a boat, he was met by a proa full of men that were armed with spears. However, those men saw that only Dampier and one other man to row the boat were there, so they escorted Dampier ashore to meet with their elder. Now, as it happens, the people of Great Nicobar did not speak Malay. However, the elder did have a bit of it from his time trading, so they were able to communicate in a broken, difficult language. However, Dampier did well here. He made a show of deference to the elder and was warmly received by all of the people. The elder of Great Nicobar invited Dampier to stay there on the island with him in his home, but he told him no other pirates. They could have no more than three men, including Dampier, on shore at a time. If they broke that rule, they could expect to be attacked by the many, many warriors there who outnumbered whoever was on that ship. Whether or not that's true, I like this move by this elder a lot. Dampier naturally thanked him for his hospitality, but then he tried to explain his situation. He tried to explain that there were others, like him, that wanted to escape the signet. Those men, though, had guns and steel. They could get those guns and swords and spears to the town. They could get enough of them to arm all of those warriors, and they would have to be armed because they were going to have to fight. The pirates of the signet were definitely going to attack, and his friends, those others that wanted to escape, would help in the fight. Now that sounds fine to us, who know that there was a splinter group, but the elder was suspicious. This foreigner was asking him to accept fifteen or maybe twenty heavily armed men on his shore. That's a very good way to get a raiding party into town with no resistance. That rift in the crew was a sticking point, he didn't really believe that. At least, he could not afford to believe that, not with such a well-armed ship in the harbor menacing his hometown. Dampier was trying to talk his way through this, but then, as Dampier tells us, quote, I had not been ashore an hour before Captain Teat and John Damarell, with three or four armed men more, came to fetch me aboard again. I told them that I was ready to go with them, and went aboard. When I came aboard, I found the ship in an uproar, for there were three men more who desired to leave also. One of them was the surgeon, Mr. Coppinger, the other was Mr. Robert Hall, and one named Ambrose. These men had always harbored the same designs as I. The two last were not opposed, but Captain Reed and his crew would not part with the surgeon. At last the surgeon leapt into the canoe, and, taking up my gun, swore he would go ashore, and that if any man did oppose him, he would shoot. John Oliver, quartermaster, leapt into the canoe, taking hold of him, took away the gun. With the help of two more, they dragged him again into the ship. End quote. Dampier returned to Signet to find it in mayhem. Two men who felt very much like Dampier, were arguing that they wanted to leave, as was his friend, Herman Coppinger. Those other two, Robert Hall and Mr. Ambrose, they were permitted to leave, as was Dampier. But 
Herman Coppinger was not. He was forcefully dragged back aboard while Dampier was put on a boat and rowed to shore. One of the men who did the rowing gifted these three a few tools. They gave them an axe and a musket, some shot and powder to work it, and they had their effects, including Dampier's sea chest. Once ashore, they made their way to a small hut that had been offered to Dampier by the elder about an hour ago. But then, as they were settling in, another small boat rowed out from the signet, and it had five men aboard. It was night, I doubt they would have been able to see, but I wonder if there was a moment of hope in Dampier's heart. Maybe Coppinger had talked his way off the ship. Maybe they let him go. They were close friends. Regardless of whether or not there was more to their relationship than platonic friendship, I imagine that this friend was foremost in Dampier's thoughts. However, when they got close enough, hope died. Herman Coppinger was not aboard. Instead, there was a Portuguese sailor who had been with them for some time since shortly after leaving Mindanao, and four Malay men. Those Malay men were from the proa that they had captured only a couple of weeks ago. This was not a crack team of elite pirates. This was the dregs. Robert Hall could handle himself well enough, and Ambrose know his business on the sea, but Dampier was the only one with any experience at command. Naturally, that fell to his shoulders. The men bedded down for the night, and come morning, the elder there on Nicobar Island was quite surprised to see eight men camped out on the beach rather than the agreed-upon three. However, instead of the frigate Signet menacing his coastline, all they had was that one tiny ship's boat. The elder understood this situation and took these men in. Dampier's ordeal, though, was far from over. However, for now, we're going to leave Dampier on Nicobar Island. Next time, we need to turn our attention to another crew. A crew that we've met before, but have not seen in some time. Next time, we are returning to the West Indies. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, and there have been a lot of you recently. Thanks to Andrew and Ashley, to Ethan and Joe and Julia and Mike. Thanks, of course, to our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and anybody who I have failed to mention personally, I appreciate all of you. You really make this show happen. And thanks to everybody who supports the show not through Patreon. Those of you who have chosen to use our options on the website, that helps out a ton. And of course, everybody who has recommended this show... Obviously, I haven't seen those of you who have told your friends about it, but I do occasionally see it online, and it's just amazing. Everybody who leaves ratings and reviews, that helps out a lot also. To all of you, thank you. This wouldn't be possible without you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com 
or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.